So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You know, of all the biblical stories that people have asked me to do on this podcast, the one that comes up most often has got to be the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. But honestly, it's one of those stories that I have resisted doing up until this point. I've resisted, I think, because I have seen what other people have done with this story, read into this story. It seemed as if there was nothing left to do. For example, in hundreds, if not thousands of sermons and in commentaries, I have heard the same observation made and turned into a dramatic part of the story. I have been told that the woman in this story was shunned by all of the other women in her community. Everyone seems to accept that as an established fact. I even asked an AI bot, and it assured me that, yes, everyone in Sikar hated this woman. And that would be indeed a very dramatic point to put into a story. But do you know what it is based on? It is based on one sentence in the story. And that sentence doesn't say anything about people shunning her. No. It is based on the sentence where it says, It was about noon. Yes? Apparently based on that one sentence, we can know everything about this woman's place in local society. The logic goes like this. It is too hot at noon in that part of the world, and so people generally don't go out and do their various tasks at noon. They tend to go and fetch water at the well either early in the morning or later in the evening. The village well also often served as a place for a local gathering and socializing, and so anyone who was not there at those times would have missed out on such social interaction. All of that is true enough. But the next logical leap is the one that everyone seems to take, and it is a big one. Therefore, people conclude 
The only possible reason why this woman could have been at the well at noon was that everybody hated her and she was trying to avoid them. I don't know about you, but that seems to me as if people have just read a whole lot into the gospel writer just mentioning what time of day it was. Is it not possible that there could be something else going on here? Honestly, this is something that seems to happen a lot with any female character who is given prominence in the Bible. They all seem to be interpreted in the harshest way possible. Everyone seems to be intent on affirming, often based on very little evidence, that this woman or that woman was a social pariah, was a prostitute, or a loose woman, was a sinner, or adulterer. And apparently this woman, who met Jesus by the well, has not been spared the harshness of interpreters. But I have recently become convinced that there are other ways of reading stories like this one. It all has to do with how you tell the story. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.8 What really happened at the well? The day was getting hot as she took her water jar and set out on the short walk towards the town well. As she went, she passed by many of her friends in their homes. As usual, they all called out to her with some good-natured ribbing. They all liked to make fun of the habit she had formed of going out and taking care of her duties right in the middle of the day. They always asked her why she wasn't more sensible, why she didn't do these kinds of things earlier in the day or perhaps later in the evening when everyone else did. She always laughed along to whatever they said and didn't really let it bother her. She knew that they thought she was odd, but it was never really a problem to her. It was really just a matter of personal preference. She saw herself as a person of the light. She was someone who had a curious and inquisitive mind 
She always wanted to understand things and why they worked the way that they did. The way she saw it, light was the great illuminator. And so, as she went about her daily tasks, she often chose to do them at times when others didn't, so that she could have the time to ponder many things. In doing so, she had often found great insights to deeper truths. On this day, for example, she was just reflecting on questions of worship and the proper ways to worship the God of Israel. She had never felt truly satisfied with the practices of her people, despite how meaningful they were to her. She was wondering how she might find a connection to her God that could sustain her better in every area of her life. As she came to the well, her mind still spinning many thoughts, she was somewhat surprised to see that there was a man sitting nearby. He was, by the clothing and the look of him, a Judean, probably from Galilee. When he spoke to her, his thick Galilean accent confirmed to her that this surmise was indeed correct. The Judean man was not just sitting there in a Samaritan town by a Samaritan well by accident. In fact, he had been reflecting a great deal on what had led him to be at this place at this time. He had chosen to take this route very intentionally and had done so despite the strong objections of his traveling companions. He had done so largely out of a growing sense of frustration he had been feeling. They had traveled down to Jerusalem together, and while he was there, he had been approached by a man named Nicodemus. Now, this Nicodemus was a highly respected man, a leader of the community, and a member of the council. This should have been a good sign, an indication that the message was getting out and having some effect. But the way that this Nicodemus had approached him had been so discouraging. He had come at night, and his motivations for coming in the darkness were transparent. He clearly did not want to be seen. He seemed to be terrified by the very idea that others might think he was a supporter. But more than that, Nicodemus seemed to have a darkness in his mind. Everything that was said to him 
he seemed completely incapable of understanding. His mind was as dark as the night in which he came. And so this encounter had left the man craving for somebody different, someone who was a lover of the light, whose full intellect was engaged in the quest for understanding. And so, when he sat down here, by this well, at the brightest time of the day, sending his followers away so that he was alone, he did so in the hope that someone who was the very opposite of Nicodemus might appear. And so, when the woman approached, he spoke to her with a great eagerness for the conversation that might follow. But the time of this encounter was only part of his design. He had also chosen the place. And that had been what his companions had objected to so strongly. When he told them that they were going to return from Jerusalem to Galilee by taking the direct route, by passing through Samaria, they had howled their objections. It was the kind of thing that good Judeans simply did not do. Galilean travelers passing between Judea and Galilee routinely went scores of miles out of their way in order to avoid even the possibility of encountering Samaritans in their home territory. And while they were walking here, the man's companions had certainly not hesitated to explain to him all the reasons why they really ought not to have come this way. Don't you know that Samaritans simply do not have a proper relationship with the God of our people? One of them asked him. Now, good Judeans like us, we are like people who are properly married to God. But these Samaritans, they do not have a legitimate relationship. They are simply not married to God like we are. Another of them picked up the complaint. Haven't you heard, he said, their failure to properly worship God goes all the way back to the time after their kingdom was destroyed by the king of Assyria. The king brought all kinds of other people to live there from all over his empire. They are not the descendants of Abraham not like we are. Sure, they learned to worship the God of Israel, sort of, for God would not tolerate them in the land if they didn't, 
But they say that right up until today, they still worship their old foreign gods as well in five holy sites spread throughout their land. So how can they be truly married to the God of Israel when they've had, like, five other husbands as well? The teacher had heard these and many other complaints about the Samaritans before. But still, he had insisted they come this way. He wanted to see if the real people here might just be more interested in talking in the light of day than Nicodemus had been. He was determined not to let anyone's idea of what they were get in the way of discovering that. So, the man and the woman sat by the well, talking in the full light of day. They both recognized that they had encountered someone with a sharp and penetrating mind. It had cost them, each of them, in their own way, to be here at this place and at this time. But both were certain that the cost was paying off. They had started off talking about water. It was a natural enough subject on a hot, dry afternoon. He caught her by surprise by offering to her something that he called living water, suggesting that it would create a kind of spring welling up within her. She laughed it off with a comment about how, if he gave her that, she would never need to come back and draw water again. But it did make her think and wonder about what this man was really offering. But it was not long before the discussion about water led them into a discussion of some of the more controversial matters between them, matters of worship. The question of her husband, or actually the fact that she didn't have one, came up. And he was reminded of the discussion he had had with his followers on the way to this place. You are right in saying... I have no husband, he said to her with an exaggerated Galilean accent, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. She understood immediately what he was doing, of course. As a Samaritan living not all that far from the Galilean border, she was about as familiar with the slurs that the Judeans used on the Samaritans as they were themselves. She knew that he was referring not to her 
personal domestic life, but to the Judean slanders on Samaritan failures to worship God correctly as far as they were concerned. Of course, she did not accept this criticism any more than any other Samaritan would have. But she did not choose to respond angrily. Rather, she chose to strike back at him by calmly raising one of the grievances that the Samaritans had against the Judeans when it came to matters of religion. Sir, I see that you are a prophet, she said in a somewhat mocking tone. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. He stiffened when she said that, as any Judean might. It was about something that happened a long time ago, over a century in fact. But every Judean would have understood why she spoke about worshipping on this mountain, which was Mount Gerizim, the holy mountain of the Samaritans, in the past tense. There was a reason why the Samaritans could no longer properly worship there. In the days of the high priest John Harkanus, the Judeans had come and destroyed the temple on Gerizim on the high priest's orders. It had been a devastating blow to the Samaritan people a direct attack on their faith and identity. Many of them felt they could never forgive the Judeans for what they had done. It was made all that much harder to bear because the ruins of the sanctuary were still there to be seen every time they gathered to worship in the open air. And so it was perhaps not surprising that the woman's eyes filled with tears as she said bitterly, But you Judeans say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. The tension by the side of that well was so thick that you could cut it with a knife. Between the two of them, they had just broached the two greatest grievances that stood between their two people. Judeans accused the Samaritans of false worship and the worship of foreign gods. Well, the Samaritans accused the Judeans of attacking and destroying their most holy place. Surely they would never be able to reconcile over these things. This was exactly the kind of disagreement that most Judeans went so far out of their way to avoid having. And yes, they said it was because they despised the Samaritans for their deficient relationship with God. 
But I cannot help but wonder whether part of it was that they didn't want to deal with their own guilt for what their ancestors had done to the Samaritans. If you put a normal Judean together in a room with the average Samaritan and put this topic on the table, you could almost guarantee that the conversation would end by the two of them coming to blows. But neither this man nor this woman were what you could call normal or average. They were each extraordinary in their own way. And so, though it was a hard thing to do, they were able to look at each other with mutual respect. They had just raised the most difficult issues imaginable. They had faced their deepest animosity. And yet, still, they were committed to keep the conversation going. They both knew that they were on the brink of discovering something important. It was the man who said it first. Perhaps we shouldn't be arguing over worship at all, he proposed. Believe me, the hour is coming when you and I will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Indeed, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. There was great power in doing what he had just done there. When people are divided, when they just can't seem to get past the fact that they see a certain matter so differently that there is no hope of reconciliation, it may seem impossible to continue the conversation. But sometimes you may be able to find a higher truth, one that transcends lesser differences. And that was what he had just managed to do. If it was true that God is spirit, and those who worship God must worship in spirit and truth, then what was the point of hating people over any form of worship that was in any way human? And so the tension was broken. And perhaps that was what allowed the woman to bring up a topic where both Judeans and Samaritans were much more aligned. The hope for a Messiah. I know that Messiah is coming, she said. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. 
She probably wasn't expecting him to reply by saying, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. It is a testimony to how open this woman was in her heart and how earnestly she was searching for light that she did not balk at what he said. In fact, when she considered the whole of their conversation by the time it was done, she actually accepted what he said. Indeed, she was the first to do so. Yes, he had been richly rewarded by stepping out of his safety zone to engage her in the light and on her territory. How do I know that she accepted him? It was a simple thing that she did, but it was full of meaning. When she returned to the city, she left her water jar behind. Why would she do that? Well, there's no good explanation for leaving such an essential item behind unless she actually believed what he had told her and she had received the living water from him that he had promised. For if she had that, as she had said, what need did she have to return and draw water from Jacob's well? So she became the first believer in the Messiah. She also became the first evangelist. And it is actually a testimony to how much the people in that city respected her and her deeply inquisitive mind that when she came back raving about meeting the Messiah, they didn't just dismiss her as a fool. Yes, it seems that the people of Sikar thought much more highly of her than did many of those who, since that day, have preached about her or written about her. I really feel as if I ought to thank my listeners who have suggested to me several times over the years that I ought to tackle this story from the Gospel of John. As I said, I had just felt as if this story had already been told to death. I am particularly thankful to one scholar whose work allowed me to take a fresh look at the story. I recently read Women in the Bible, the interpretation commentary by Jamie Clark Souls, and she was the one who challenged me to look at this story without the many harsh interpretations that had been heaped upon it. She was the one who pointed out 
that there might be another interpretation for what it meant that the woman came to the well in the middle of the day. She was the one who suggested the sharp contrast between the story of the interview with Nicodemus in the night and with the woman during the day, and reminded me that Jesus, as the light of the world, is a central theme in this gospel. She was the one who pointed out that the woman left her water jar behind, a point often missed. And she also explained the likely meaning of the five husbands and the man who is not a husband. She kind of blew up everything I thought I knew about the story, and I am grateful for her extraordinary work. As a consequence of that work, I am now convinced that the writer of the Gospel of John greatly admired the character of the woman by the well. He may well have seen her as one of the best examples of a disciple in his entire Gospel. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks and do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ah Da by Kevin McLeod, and the mood music for this episode was Desert Night by Sasha End. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. If you'd like to join them or discover the benefits they receive, go to patreon.com slash retellingthebible. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.